Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham, and you're listening to Energy vs. Climate, the show where my co-hosts, David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's energy challenges, highlighting the Albertan and Canadian context. If this is your first time joining us, Energy vs. Climate is a live webinar and podcast that drops every other week. Visit energyversusclimate.com to register for updates and get exclusive access to join our live webinars, ask us questions, and engage with us directly. Today we've got a special end-of-season Ask Us Anything episode where we answer a variety of your audience questions. Thanks to everyone who submitted a question and supported us this season. That's it for Season 3 of Energy vs. Climate, but we'll be back in the fall with more climate and energy news and commentary. Now here's the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Season 3, Episode 13, our last of Season 3. My name is Ed Whittingham and I'm joined by my webinar co-hosts, Sarah Hastings-Simon and David Keith. So we've covered a lot of topics this season on energy versus climate. We've covered soul, uh, coal, solar, aviation, cement, heat impacts, natural gas in the home, net zero corporate commitments, industrial policy, and even crypto. But as always, we never get to cover as many questions from you, our audience, as we would like to. So for this last episode of season three, once again, we're just going to set aside the full hour to take your questions. Uh, We've asked you in advance to send them in. And once again, thank you, our faithful and devoted audience, uh, our listenership. You responded. You've done just that. So without any further ado, let's get down to the first question. And this one comes from Ryan Miles, who wrote to us, I overheard someone at work say that Canada is actually carbon neutral because of all our trees. First of all, is that even close to being true? And what would you say when someone says something like that? So, Sarah, starting with you, what would you say when someone says Canada's carbon neutral because of all our wonderful trees? Well, I guess I would sit them down and walk them through the way that emissions uh, that are captured within land use and forestry are treated. Uh, and, and the fact that we do, you know, when, when people do emissions inventories and when Canada does its emissions inventory as, as part of the UNFCCC process, they uh, they do think about, you know, what happens with the land use. And, and we do actually in Canada, the way that we manage our lands and some of the forestries get um, the most recent figure I saw was 28 megatons, basically, of of sort of negative emissions credits. That's about uh, 4% of the emissions of, of Canada as a whole on a yearly basis. So, you know, no, that does not make us carbon neutral. But I think the bigger picture, you know, explanation is really simply saying, you know, trees do store carbon, but the amount is, you know, significantly smaller than than what we emit. And when you plant a tree, uh, we can't sort of plant infinite trees, right? So we're talking about the emissions in a given year and the idea that, you know, because we have a bunch of trees sitting around there, uh, you know, we might think about how that impacts, you know, previous emissions, things like that. But it's the scale of these two things is simply, you know, one has nothing to do with the other. So, so no, we are not, uh, it's not even close to being true that we're carbon neutral. I guess I would say, there's also a risk that that things are actually going to get a lot worse. And there was a paper that came out just um, yesterday, the day before, looking at California's offsets uh, when it comes to forest, the forestry sector. And there, um, there's an attempt to basically create this sort of bank account, if you want, where extra emissions reductions related to forestry are sort of stored to take um, to cover the fact that, you know, eventually some of these trees are going to burn up, or they're going to be eaten by bugs, and, and they're going to release the carbon um, that they have because of these kinds of, of events or natural disasters like forest fires. And as it turns out, this, um, this offset bank that was set up to basically work for 100 years, uh, basically after, you know, only a couple of years now, uh, the, the wildfire and uh, and insect activity has basically used up all of that all of that bank. So you know, no, we don't have uh, we don't have enough trees, and moreover, a lot of the carbon storage that we have had in trees um, is going to be you know made even harder by by impacts of of climate change. Yeah, it's it's like the rainy day fund being used up the day after you put the last deposit in. And you know, this, I'm glad we're talking about this, Danielle Smith. For those uh, not outside of Alberta, former 
leader of the Wild Rose Party, now running to get back into government. She's written articles saying, let's celebrate that Canada is likely a net zero polluter. And, uh, and I think gets away with it. David, what do you say to someone when, when they come forward with this trees argument? Um, I kind of go back to the basic biology and to the insights when the accounting system was set up, which is quite different from what Sarah uh, reported, which is the way it is now after political pressure. So in equilibrium, natural systems, forests or soils, basically don't take up any significant carbon. If they did, we would have had extraordinarily low carbon. Um, trees will, of course, take up carbon. If you cut them all down in a place that wants to have trees, it will suck up carbon as they grow again, but then it comes back to equilibrium. And the carbon problem is basically driven by bringing carbon from the geosphere, from deep underground to the active biosphere, to the atmosphere where it equilibrates with the ocean and the, and the land. And nothing you can do, literally nothing you can do about planting trees offsets the long run risk of burning a ton of carbon. Let me try and put that in, in simpler forms. A bunch of this depends on really two things. When accounting starts, and if you take and, and link to that is taking uh, both sides of the risk. So let's start with when accounting starts. Eastern North America, where I sometimes live, near where I teach at Harvard, um, is actually a big carbon sink now. And that's because all the trees were pretty much cut down in 1850. And, and then Farming went away. Farming went to other parts of the country, and 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 big hardwood is growing back. So you have a lot of, of of carbon being pulled out of the air. But that is only possible. It's only happening because of the carbon we put into the air earlier, and and that was, and as a consequence of that, the original insight of the framework convention accounting system said that that changes in natural stocks didn't count to country emissions. And that I think is the right answer, and it's the answer we'll eventually get back to. I think another way to say it is that. If Canada was truly in the long run in a sensible accounting system to get to count somehow the positive of the trees, it also has to count the negative uh, if the trees burn or, or climate change changes them. But even if our territorial waters emit more carbon as the climate changes, or if the permafrost emits more carbon as climate changes, the answer is those changes in natural systems are part of the feedback of the climate system. They're not uh, the human activity. And they shouldn't count in a sensible accounting system. Um, I guess one last comment. I feel like we will start to see the limits of the nonsense here in the next decade or so. So the science world has got better and better at accounting for the total carbon in land. We can actually do it quite accurately now. There's some really clever tricks of isotopic chemistry and, and measurements from satellites. And we can see that the land biosphere is actually not taking up significantly more carbon. And yet the uh, system of offsets is counting more and more offsets and more and more accounting systems and Ernst and Young's or whatever are going to ladle on really accurate accounting that is fundamentally corrupt. And eventually it'll become clear that it's corrupt because you'll see that the claimed offsets will be bigger than the error bars and the actual uh, carbon, which is not actually changing. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I, I fall back on some of the discussion that we had with Mark Tursik the ex-CEO of the Nature Conservancy, back in, in, in season two. There, there are all sorts of good ecological reasons for protecting wetlands, for protecting forests. We need important carbon storage areas in Canada as much as possible to be protected to release that carbon that's been stored there for thousands of years. But it, bottom line, it, it can't ever be a substitute for emissions reductions coming through, say, renewable electricity or permanent carbon removal and moreover, we just don't have the landmass. They're just density limitations. They're, they're density limitations. If, if you want to remove a gigaton of carbon, truly remove it from the atmosphere, even on an impermanent basis, you're going to need 3.3 to 10 million square kilometers for afforestation, which happens to be an area the size of Canada. So no, it's I, just I, I don't agree with that. I think that there is enough land. If you do BEX, there's enough land to take out all the carbon. You can see that in this beautiful thing that Freeman Dyson said 30 years ago, if you look at the annual cycle, that annual cycle is the earth breathing. And so it's clear if you wanted to, I would, you know, I would stand in front of the bulldozers and fight against it. But there is enough biosphere that if you wanted to manipulate the biosphere, you could do it. I mean, you know, you know, people have proposed building strings of nuclear reactors along the shore of the Sahara and running big uh, reserve, reverse osmosis plants for desalination and you know filling that with artificial uh, forest you, you could manipulate the biosphere to pull out a lot of carbon but what you can't do is both do that and have it be nature that's why at the core the idea of nature based solutions is quite literally an oxymoron you could manipulate the environment to pull carbon out but then it's not the natural environment 
And, and I agree with you, David, but I, Bex, comparing Bex to afforestation, I consider to be an apples to orange, uh, oranges yeah. comparison. And yeah. you're right, Bex, or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, gets that carbon. And as long as you're sequestering it in some geology, it is permanent removal. And it means much less of a land figure. Although on the upper end, to get that gigaton on the upper end, it would be 5 million square kilometers, which is just half the size of Canada, as opposed to just relying on trees or, or even replanting trees, which is great. You need a ton of land. And ultimately, that carbon is going to go back up into the atmosphere. It's just a matter of time. I, I think, I mean, one last point, I think the fantasy is that somehow that nature always wants more carbon. That's natural to do that. And I think the point is these things are often in opposition. I mean, in the area where the three of us live, uh, there's been, in some sense, too much fire suppression. And people who care about the natural landscape will say it's there's more carbon than there should be. And if what you care about is the natural world being left more like the natural world, it, it's not as if you can do that and put more carbon in at the same time. Those are those are not synergies. I got to say, I think this is also, you know, going back to like, what would you say when someone says something like this? To me, it sort of gets back to almost the heart of what you know we were talking about early on. We talked about what we want to do with energy versus climate, right? Because there is this sort of like nice sounding story, right? Like Canada is actually carbon neutral because of all our trees. You know, we have a lot of trees. It would, wouldn't it be so nice if that that meant that like somehow we as a country were actually carbon neutral? And I think that is, you know, we've we've explained now, I think in in relative detail about why that's not true, and I think it's very clear that that's not true. But that explanation in some sense and in, in some of the kind of discourse that goes on in this space is not necessarily completely negating, you know, this sort of happy tale that somebody wants to tell that makes people, you know, sort of glom onto that idea and then want to continue to, to go about their day, you know, with this idea that it's all fine and we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. And these <laughs> notions that, that get out there and, and stick because they're wonderful examples of happy talk. You know, natural Canadian natural gas is a climate solution. We need to be getting lots of international recognition and credit for uh, liquefying natural gas and sending it over to China to displace coal. And the math on that breaks pretty quickly. I flew on Delta yesterday, and for those of you who are not watching the video, I'm holding up a napkin uh, uh, that I got on Delta, and the, and I was going to tweet this out. So it says carbon neutral since March 2020. Travel confidently, knowing that we will offset the carbon emitted on your Delta flight. And I wrote, that was easy. And I think there's a, just this level of kind of uh, of kind of incommensurate bullshit. And, and bullshit really is the right word. Those of you who, who want a literary reference should read the, the marvelous uh, uh, tome on bullshit. But but it, it really is bullshit in a, in a deep and kind of kind of fun sense. I mean, if the climate problem was really, it, it kind of can't be that climate is a, a crisis that's really hard to solve. And oh, Delta just made itself carbon neutral. Those Those things are can't both be true. No, but you offset about five tons worth of guilt through that napkin, David. You know, that's that's that what it is. Yeah. yeah, we're 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 recycling like thousands of tons of guilt per year. We're uh through efforts like that. Okay. Um let's let's uh let's go to a, another commonly held uh truth uh that's out there. Sarah, over to you for our next question. All right. So question number two here comes from uh, Matt, our listener, Magnus Gleck. Uh, he says, why does the oil industry and its political backers keep saying that Canada's oil industry is the most environmentally sustainable or responsible in the world? Or perhaps better stated, why do they get away with saying it on greenhouse? And he goes on to explain, you know, on greenhouse glasses that this is clearly not the case, that the biggest proportion of our oil production from oil stands is at least three times more carbon intensive as the world average. Um, so on a carbon uh metric where we're obviously not really competing. Um, there's also, of course, a number of outstanding issues with tailing ponds and unfunded liabilities um, that exist out there. So how do we square all of these issues with so-called world-leading environmental responsibility? I'll, I'll try first by actually um, agreeing with the, with the claims about ethical oil. So, so I think it is true that partly because Canada's a, a well-regulated um, Western democracy with pretty good environmental rules, that compared to the average oil produced around the world, oil in Canada is produced with uh, uh, lower environmental footprints and better controls. So partly, but that that's of course, because you're comparing it to average oil, which includes Saudi Arabia and Northern Russia and Nigeria, which have terrible environmental standards. So 
Canada in general has good environmental standards and real enforcement. So of course there are problems, of course there are impacts. You can't do any large-scale energy system with impacts. But I think it's fair to say that in terms of labor impacts or environmental impacts, Canadian oil is produced uh, in generally in better in terms of overall environment than, than uh, much of the world. But I think the answer is, so what? That's a consequence of generally having good environmental standards in Canada. And it's not true for greenhouse gases. Gee, David, you stole my gratuitous pandering thunder. So uh, let me let me be serious. I I agree with you, and and I will defend the Canadian oil and gas industry because I've dealt with uh, many of the companies, and they're good people who genuinely work hard to decrease environmental impacts. They tend to be more at the majors than at the mid-sized or junior companies. Not to say that they're bad people there, but they just pay less attention to climate and the environment. They've done a lot of things around minimizing product losses or minimizing methane leakage. They got a lot more to do, recycling and reuse of inputs like water. And I would far rather deal with a Canadian company on decreasing environmental impacts, say, than a Saudi Aramco or PetroChina or a Luke Oil. And to go back to that question, two to three times more carbon intensive, you have to know, and I've I've been part of that, there are these averages, but it depends how you're measuring it. Are you measuring it just at the point of production? Are you measuring right through to the tailpipe? There's some estimates if it's through to the tailpipe, it's on average 15% more. Plus there are reservoirs and plays that are pretty close to the global average. But without question, if we're talking about in Alberta, where much of the production is coming from, but from the oil sands, your starting point, it is just more carbon intensive. And in spite of the goodwill and the people working really hard to try to move it from a high cost, high carbon quadrant down to a low cost, low carbon one, you're just going to bump up against some of the fundamental physics. And it's just going to be really difficult. And you're, I think for the foreseeable future, you're going to be, if not the rest of time, you're going to be outcompeted by the Saudi Arabias of the world where the oil just springs out of the sand. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I have to chuckle a little bit at it. You're, uh, you know, sharing this idea of sort of what's the wells to wheel or the total life cycle impact of oil. I'm old enough to remember, uh, you know, a few years ago when the tables were turned and it was the oil sector that liked to talk about how uh, it's the life cycle emissions that matter. And it was the angos that were focused on <laughs> yeah, the upstream yeah. emissions. And it seems that in a very short period of time, all of a sudden, uh, everybody's speaking from the other's playbook. And and there's this question of, you know, we the upstream emissions are, as you say, you know, in inherently more emissions intensive. And that's because of the nature of the resource. And I think there is, I do think that there is a bit of, um, you know, misinformation being pushed or this idea that because there have been efforts to reduce those upstream emissions, um, that that somehow means that the, the oil, uh, the, the, greenhouse gas emissions upstream um, is somehow equal to that of elsewhere. And it's sort of this question of, you know, effort versus results. You know, people have, some people have worked hard and they have, you know, there have been improvements there, but the reality is the nature of the resource just means that even with those improvements, it is still inherently more emissions intensive. Um, You know, I think there's also an interesting point around this question of, you know, world leading environmental responsibility and, and who really gets credit for that. And, um, the idea of, you know, especially when you look at companies, um, and, and this is across sectors, right? If you look at oil and gas, but also mining and others, um, there are companies that are, you know, American or Canadian companies that might operate up to the standards, um, or, or frankly, not always up to the standards, right? And, and, but, but are at least uh, subject to the, the rules of, of the law of the land in those countries. But then they have a lot more problems when they go and uh, have operations in, in other places, right? Uh, big oil companies that are operating in Ecuador, in Russia that are, you know, in many cases, the uh, the international arm of these American and Canadian oil companies. And so, you know, I would really question, is it is it actually that the, the companies themselves are somehow inherently more responsible or are they simply, as, you know, David said, you know, we do on average have a, a set of better laws here in, in Canada than in some places because of the, the state of our sort of functioning democracy and, and rules around environmental standards. So, um, you know, if you want to talk about who gets credit for that, I think that's also a, a more complicated discussion. Yeah, you know, years ago, one of the majors... Uh, one of the major oil and gas companies commissioned a big consulting firm to do an audit on industry practices in Canada versus practices in other jurisdictions. And I remember 
And for a while, they were shopping that around Calgary saying, hey, we're number two, we're number two. And these are like sustainability practices next to Norway. And that's great. And yes, ours should be an ethical barrel of oil. There you go, Ezra Levant. I'm, I'm repeating your, your, your catchphrase. But the market, the reality is the world market has not yet really priced in ethics into a barrel of oil where it's figured out how to price in carbon into a barrel of oil. And if Canada really wants Canadian oil to be the last barrel produced, it better find a way of pricing those other sustainability metrics into a barrel of oil. And it's struggling to do that. All right, David, can you uh, take us to the question on behavioral change? Yeah. So um, this question from Matteo Panacetti. I should have practiced this beforehand. I apologize, Matteo. That sounded pretty good. That sounded pretty good. Totally mostly bungling that. Um, uh, Matteo points out that we really haven't spent enough time on behavioral levers for emissions reduction and, and discusses the idea that, that the extent to which EVs might really change a uh, transportation picture and hints at other ways, uh, work from home that we really might change, um, change it, change energy use through, uh, through, through behavioral changes. And I think it's true that we haven't talked about it enough. And I think, I think when I think about it, I think what are examples of behavioral changes that are relatively easy to make in the sense that at least in principle, people could make them without paying a big cost or without changing a lot of other things in their lives compared to behavioral changes that are kind of coupled with a bunch of other things about job and work and location that are harder to make. And from my perspective, I actually think that the business of, of eating less meat, not necessarily being vegetarian, but of eating significantly less meat is one of the easiest things where I actually really could imagine a behavioral shift that would significantly reduce emissions. Whereas while I absolutely agree that the world could be less car-centric, I think it's very hard for, say, the world of where we live in Alberta to suddenly be less car-centric given the distribution of real estate and jobs. And I think I don't see quick ways to change that that are behavioral, but love to hear uh, what what Ed and Sarah think. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll go first uh- at the risk of sounding like I'm promoting EVC's back catalog, let me promote EVC's back catalog and, and harken back to the conversation we, we had with Amy Myers Jaffe of uh, the Fletcher School of Tufts, Tufts University last season. So on that question of getting people out of cars, I think there is a lot going on around mode switching. I, I, I should say, David, to your point, eating less meat. Yes. I remember the Union of Concerned Scientists talked about that. I read a book, you know, top five things you can do to help the world. And that was number two or number three. Absolutely. But there is lots going on around mode switching and fuel switching. And by mode switching, getting out of cars, COVID showed us very clearly that e-commerce and telecommuting hit really faster than what we assumed uh, the speed at which you would hit five years ago. We were continuing to telecommute. We use Amazon. Car sales, they've rebounded a bit, but in 2020, they were down 15%. Uh, Vehicle miles traveled was down 14%. Now, on fuel switching, EV sales are way up. It's not mode shifting, but it's also important. And more and more jurisdictions now are getting back to banning internal combustion engine vehicles. So I think the challenge we have right now, if we don't want to be car-centric, is we have people that are frankly afraid, still afraid to use mass transit. And we've got 30% of Canadians still working from home. That's good. But I know anecdotally and looking at some of the stats, public transit, the ridership really has not come back. And it still hasn't come back for air travel. And we'll have to see if people are ultimately comfortable getting back and you know, like sharing a bus with a bunch of other people. So I'm going to push back a little bit, David, on on what you're saying about sort of the potential there. I think it's true that, you know, as the only solution to get people out of cars, you know, in Alberta and our Canada, um, that that would, you know, that would be really hard if we were to try to get everybody out of private cars. I think this is a good example, though, of where the climate challenge becomes one of all the many, many different things that we have to do, right? And so to put some some numbers behind it, I think that the, the recent IPCC report from Working Group 3 has this really nice graph, we'll link it in the show notes, of all of the different levers to reduce emissions and broken down by sector. And so within transport, you know, they have um, electric light duty vehicles where the potential there um, is one of the largest within that sector, but it is very similar in scale to that of the shift to 
public transportation. And also, um, you know, those smaller, about, about double, but it's still on there is the shift to bikes and e-bikes. And so, you know, I think that there is much more potential to get people out of private cars in Canada than, than currently happening in a way that I actually think also is, you know, not not necessarily difficult and in some cases can actually even improve well-being. Um, so I actually had looked a little while back at this question in terms of, you know, how far are people actually driving their cars? And if you look at Canada as a whole, 20% of commuters, this is pre-COVID, but 20% of commuters are commuting by car distances under five kilometers, right? So that's a distance that I think is, you know, not everybody can ride a bike, um, but if we're looking at a range of e-bikes and, and different uh, trikes and things like that, a lot of people can. Um, and that's, you know, under five kilometers is a, is a relatively short distance to bike if you have safe infrastructure to do so and a place to lock up your bike and things like that. If you go up to 10 kilometers, which, you know, again, with a, um, a, a bike and someone who's in good shape or, or an e-bike like uh, and someone who's not in great shape like me, you can do in about, you know, 20, 25 minutes. Um, it's a third of all Canadians are commuting that distance by car. So there is, I would say, a pretty significant amount of things that can be done. Um, and again, the challenge there is even that specific issue of trying to get people, say, out of cars and, and on into bikes and public transit and walking within cities um, is that you have to address that with a suite of policies. So now you're sort of down into the, you have a suite of policies for the suite of policies. Um, and again, there, there was an interesting review paper that came out recently that said, you know, it's really countries and, and cities that have done this well, use a combination of carrots and sticks in terms of making it possible for people to do this stuff by having the infrastructure that's required and also making sure that more of the true costs of, of, of moving by car are, um, are included. And I do think that you know, there are potential benefits. I was dropping my kids off last night uh, at soccer um, and my bike riding home uh, and stopped at a light by uh, uh, another woman and her uh, younger child. And we had a nice little chat while we were waiting for the light to turn. Um, and it just reminded me again that, you know, there are ways in which the sort of car-centric culture that we have built up in, you know, much of North America does get us out of, of things that are, you know, I think a, a nice part of life in a city where you actually interact with other people and, you know, have a have a nice chat and conversation. So I think it's, you know, by no means is it is it the solution, but I really like this idea of, you know, we need fewer eat, we need fewer cars and we need to electrify them. And, and that means a lot of different things that a lot of people need to do. You know, it's funny because uh, I, I ride my bike a lot. You know, I, I've got, we've got two vehicles. I ride my bike a lot. And people say, oh, Ed, do you ride your invite bike for the environment? And, and just as an example, like I, I ride when I play hockey three times a week. I bike with my bag to the arena with my sticks and all the guys sort of tease me about it. Do you do it for the environment? I'm like, I don't do it for the environment. I do it because I like exercise and I like fresh air. And it's often faster to get around by bike. And uh, I think more and more people are, are just picking up on that. And I, I like your point about it being social too, Sarah. I, Sarah, I, I hope we didn't come across as like being opposite sides. I totally agree with you about, uh, about the sort of the social and, and uh, effective sides of, of, uh, of getting out of our cars. I, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've bike commuted and so on. Absolutely. Yet I still don't think it's in practice a very big lever. And I, I don't think we're disagreeing. I mean, so so yes, that say 20% that's less than five kilometers might not be very hard, but it's also not very much of the energy and it's really easy to get by electrics. So I think I think my point, which I am I'm guessing you actually don't this that you would agree with, is that 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 unlike, say, for the eating less meat, where there's something that really is fundamentally behavioral. People without doing a bunch of other things in their life could just decide to do that or decide to take less uh, overseas holidays to, on, on cheap air cares, where there really is a behavioral way you just reduce your emissions. There isn't a big rebound effect. I, I see that less for, for transportation because it couples so many things together. Yeah, I, I, no, I think, that's, I think that's true. There's more that needs to be done to enable it. I think that there's you know, coming back though, actually, and that that maybe ties back to this this question, and in general, of like, why don't we talk about it more, and why is it not talked about more? And I think that is, you know, I read into that a bit of that criticism of this very, you know, techno focused approach to solutions to climate, where I think that you have 
you know, a group of people that have been thinking about, you know, and I would put myself in that as well, too. This is not a necessarily criticism of others, but but think about these issues very much from the perspective of what is the technology that's going to, you know, enable us to get there. And in, in many cases, I think there is a big technology piece of it, but but I don't think it's enough, right? I think what the IPCC and IEA and others are showing is that we really need to do both the behavioral and the technical. And I think that on balance, you know, we, the like, uh, especially technical focused climate community has spent, you know, less time talking about this behavioral stuff because it, it can be more challenging, right? And it is, it's more, you know, you need to sort of think more about the systems in which the people live and how all these things work. And it's, you know, it's a lot harder than just saying, well, we're just going to, you know, use this piece of technology instead of that piece of technology. And I think it is, it is something that we need to be, you know, thinking about more. And I guess the, the, positives that come out of something like, you know, bike commuting and things like that, then also tied to this question of, well, can we make changes in our environment, in our, in our cities or whatever it is that is addressing climate, but also somehow perhaps just making them more pleasant to live in, right? And, and being, you know, we won't have to take overseas vacations to quaint European towns where we can walk around in the, in the town um, because we'll be able to have that experience closer to home. Well, Sarah, you continue to do your part by being perhaps Calgary's leading cycling slash Twitter advocate or cycling advocate on Twitter. So I am moderating this next one. It's on geothermal. And I feel it's like kind of hitting us in our sensitive spot because we've talked long talked about a geothermal episode. We haven't got there. We have many questions. Kind of got there with uh, with Bruce Nillis on natural gas appliances in the home. But Bruce Dalton wrote to us. He says, I don't think there's been a lot of discussion about geothermal energy on the podcast. Fair enough. And what has been discussed is generally about geothermal for electricity generation. Uh, I don't think we've even talked about that much. Um, What seems more interesting to me is low temperature geothermal for heating and cooling our private and public buildings. So his question, questions are, is is this scalable? In Alberta, could this be done with orphan wells? Could those working and drilling fossil fuels be deployed to drilling for hot water? Seems like there is great potential, but no interest. I'm really skeptical there's great potential. I think that that moving water long distances, moving heat in water long distances just doesn't work very well for fundamental ensuring reasons. The cost of the piping or the energy loss trade-offs just make it not want to work that well. So what's clear is there's going to be some places where there's a community and there's an orphan well and you can put the whole thing together and it's going to be great. But the question is, how much of that can you realistically do given the actual cost of doing that all? And especially given that you have competitive ways to do, uh, uh, to do heating with low carbon, i.e. heat pumps. Yeah, I think it's very challenging, right, when you're trying to bring in the um, abandoned wells, right? Because typically those are things that are tend to be further from, you know, communities with high density, which is the opposite of what you would want here. I do think they're, you know, and, and I can't really speak to how well it works or, or not, but I, I was interested to read recently about um, some natural gas utilities down in the States that are thinking about, you know, could they convert their natural gas, parts of their natural gas distribution network into, um, into district heating. And, you know, again, there, I think there's, there's very real challenges and questions about, you know, how well uh, insulated is this infrastructure. Um, but it did appeal to me, I have to say, from this idea, again, of thinking about ways to, you know, I would say that's going one step further. The first step that people are, you know, interested in thinking about is using hydrogen, which we, I think have also discussed previously and putting that into the natural gas system. But this idea of, you know, could we repurpose this existing infrastructure that's used for heating, but in a way that is, you know, another step further, actually, from what we're doing now, um, you know, you're not distributing a gas that people are going to burn in their home, but could we go straight to distributing the heat? Um, You know, I think that is, that's often to me where you find a lot of these interesting solutions in a transition, which are still close enough that you're somehow leveraging some kind of competitive advantage or some kind of existing infrastructure, but a little bit more out of the box than the like very next obvious kind of incremental solution. So, um, you know, I think that that one is quite interesting. Um, I think, the the idea of you know geothermal and district heating again it's it's a really challenging and i think we've seen that in in calgary with you know the, some of the ideas around dis- the district heating network downtown um and and how well or or not well that's taken off 
But again, just it comes back to me a little bit in the previous discussion we were having around the behavioral issues, but also these sort of barriers that exist within the planning system and the way that we plan for heating buildings and sort of, you know, there, there I think it's a perfect example of the, the techno solution, which is, you know, the heat pumps and in particular improving the um, low temperature performance of heat pumps so that they work well in, you know, our northern climate here against sort of the thing that may be technically simpler, but you have to confront this, this much more complex sort of, you know, people space um, uh, and, and it, you know, it, it may well be that the, the techno fix in that case is, is an easier one. You know, I've got three thoughts. One, just on ramping, rapidly ramping up geothermal heat. Uh, Western Europe is going to be this great lab, given uh, its momentous efforts and challenge to get itself weaned off of Russian gas as quickly as possible. And by some estimates, as early as 2025, when it wants to be fully off uh, Russian gas. Um, I'm going to pick on Bruce a little bit when he said, could we uh, do this with Orphan Wells? And I'd agree with David, your point. And I find we've got this great environmental problem, these, these insults on the landscape here in Alberta, and lots of people want to create make work projects out of them and combine it with some other benefit like geothermal heater. I talk about, you know, here about putting carbon down bores, those, the boreholes of those orphan wells. And I think maybe we should just clean them up and put the areas back to nature and not try to couple too many other benefits while we're doing so. Putting them back to nature would be I think enough of a benefit in itself. Um, and last thing, I've been hearing about enhanced deep geothermal, and it's good, getting back to his first part of his question for electricity generation and the potential. Seems like we've been talking about it for ten to fifteen years. Uh, David, your old classmate from undergrad years, Tad Homer Dixon, was writing about it years ago, and yet I still have yet to see anything serious, at least in Western Canada, materialize. And I think that speaks for itself. Yeah. All right. Last question. Sarah, then if we're going to do the, uh, the rapid fire responses, the rapid round, we have to make it really rapid. Okay. Right. So we'll try to make this one rapid too. It's just, just yeah. a minor little question from uh, Stavros Carlos about how does Alberta and Canada depoliticize climate issues? So not, not too tricky. And in particular, there was also a, another question posed by someone, which was, how was the Clean Air Act in 1990 um, able to overcome entrenched business and political interests to move two countries to positive environmental outcomes? And I think that was also from Stav Carlos. Um, okay. So there you go, Stav. I'll, 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 I'll go, go ahead, David. Yeah, I think I think depoliticize is the wrong word. I think this is inherently and should be political in the sense that there isn't some technocratic right answer to what to do about climate. And in a democracy, this is a, this is a hard problem. I think the right way to think about it is how to make the politics better, how to make the politics more honestly deal with the actual issues and trade-offs. And I mean, that could be what you mean, but I think it's useful not to say depoliticize because depoliticize feels like really the wrong answer. I think the, the question is how to do the politics right. And I think the answer to that lies uh, in, in, in various ways to have better deliberative democracy uh, uh, to, solve, to deal with lots of technical challenges that our, our democracies don't seem to be able to deal with very well. And I think there are innovative ideas for how to do that that we need to do generally to build uh, uh, more effective democracies that involve trying to get trying to get out of the issue of advocacy groups where it's actually surprisingly easy with money to set up advocacy groups which you never really know who they stand for to try and get beyond that to have relatively randomly selected citizens actually debate real sets of topics and have the results of those deliberations count to me that's the pathway to for our democracies to do better in dealing with a variety of hard technological problems from the internet to climate change to what have you. So, uh, David, I agree around the terminology depoliticize. It will always be political. I'd like to make it, you know, in the US, a bipartisan issue here in Canada, multi-partisan issue. Uh, I want, and as someone, maybe I'm biased because I ran an advocacy group, I see it as a failure of the climate advocacy movement. And one failure that's come out recently Jean Charest, who is running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, said, I would roll back the retail carbon price. Now, I know I've met with him. I've been on a panel with Jean Charest not too long ago. I know he doesn't really believe that. Now, hopefully I'll get an email from Jean Charest telling me I'm wrong, but I think he doesn't believe that. 
I think in a way that Republicans have to kowtow to Trump in order to get elected. He is now the conservative movement in Canada has shifted to the right and into an anti-climate mode that he has to come out with that position in order for him to have a chance at winning the leadership of the conservative party. And I think that's a failure that we haven't made that just politically unpalatable, regardless of what partisan stripe you have. And that's a failure of the advocacy movement. Well, but but failure on both sides. So that's the failure on the right, for sure. But on the left, you have prominent political leaders really saying that it they're going to or that it makes sense to cut emissions fast enough to meet 1.5. And the truth is, it doesn't. And they don't really think so. Sure, sure. And and I, frankly, in my comments, David, I was more pointing the finger at the left. Yeah. I mean, the right... There have been efforts to rally conservatives, you know, in the U.S. and Canada and the EU, of course, and make climate a nonpartisan issue. And just when it seems like we're getting somewhere, I was genuinely impressed with the Conservative Party of Canada's climate plan insofar before the last election. As they said, yeah, it wasn't a great retail carbon price, but they said everyone, you know, this is something they had turned a corner on it. They had proposed a national low carbon fuel standard, a good SEB mandate. And I thought, ah, we finally turned that corner and we have made it a multi-partisan issue in Canada, and we've just reverted right back. And now something like carbon pricing is just a left-right issue again. I do think that, that Stavros actually answered his own question in some part in terms of, you know, he, he mentions this entrenched business and political interests. And to me, that is a big part of, you know, how you make progress on this stuff is, is figuring out who are the winners and losers from different policies and how do you build those coalitions of, of support, right? And I think, you know, for example, in, when you look at something like the coal phase out in Alberta, um, which, you know, still I think has has majority support important pieces of that are both, I think, what has been done. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think it's been done perfectly and there's there's room for improvement. But thinking about how to address the, um, you know, issues that are going to be raised for those that are working within the industry uh, that that are going to be impacted by loss of jobs and, and the towns and how to manage that disruption, but also who stands to gain, right? And I think that the idea that, um, you know, phasing out coal can be tied directly, you know, in the Ontario example, uh, for example, to a reduction in asthma and a reduction in asthma attacks and kids being driven to the hospital in the middle of the night by their parents because they can't breathe, right? That That makes for uh, policy that is, you know, if not depoliticized, at least one that people can sort of understand why this makes sense. And so, so I think that that is a big piece of it is really trying to understand who are, who, who wins and loses and, you know, to put it kind of bluntly, um, and then figuring out how to, you know, work with the potential winners and on the, on the loser side, how to, you know, address the impacts for those that are going to be negatively impacted and, and for whom we have a responsibility, like the workers, um, and also being okay with leaving, you know, the investors and those aside that are, you know, the, the whole idea of our capitalist structure is that sometimes they are going to win and sometimes they are going to lose. And it's not the job of the um, policymakers to, to take care of them. Yeah, that's a good point. And it gets me off my high horse for just a moment, Sarah, because to use another terminology, I've worked on issues where we politically de-risked it. And by de-risked it is we had multiple parties embrace it. And that's like driving environmental or climate outcomes through the tax system. And the way that and we've had the Conservative Party and the Liberals both agree to it, um, so it becomes bomb-proof. The, way, the reason we've been able to do that is because it's off the public radar screen, because you don't have a Pierre Polyev getting and, and enraging people by getting up and railing against uh, this minutia of tax policy. Anything big, then it just seems to be falling on this left-right divide and stab. Uh, I'm not sure what we need to do about it, uh, but I'm a bit cynical or pessimistic. I think it's just going to get worse. Okay. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shepherd us along and we're going to go through a lightning round. So the first question is, should I wait for a green hydrogen solution before buying a new vehicle, it seems like lithium mines are just as scarring as oil sands. And that's from uh, Derek Connick. I'll go, no, I don't think that there is going to be a green hydrogen vehicle for you to drive. Um, and we do need to address the negative impacts of lithium mines. But on an overall impact, when you look at environment and climate, um, the, the negative impact is much less than continuing to drive your gas powered vehicle. And, and buy an e-bike. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll chime in. Um, plug for a great podcast on the topic of 
the good, bad, and the ugly of lithium mining. It's called How We Survive with Molly Wood. Thank you, Eva, our producer, for flagging that one for me. And there are more environmental intensive ways of extraction and less environmentally intensive ways of extraction. Have a look at what's happening in California's Salton Sea, where they're coupling lithium extraction with geothermal from super hot brine. Okay, number two. I, I'm going to have to describe this. Uh, we got a graph from our listener, Douglas Ridgway, and uh, describing it to you, it's looking at resource revenue in Alberta as a percentage of total revenue. And if you look back to the early 70s, it's down to low 20s. By uh, 1980, it goes up to close to 80% of total uh, revenue, uh, resource revenue is percentage of total revenue. It bumps around, but the long-term trend is declined to where we are today, where it is hovering around 10%. And his question is, is there a pathway to net zero that preserves the level of revenue that Albertans are used to receiving from non-renewable resources? So here, I actually will maybe interpret the question a little differently, which is, I do not think that there is a global pathway to net zero that preserves the level of revenues that Albertans are used to receiving from non-renewable resources. A global net zero means a significant reduction in uh, consumption of oil and gas and a reduction in price. Um, so even if we were to maintain the same market share, there would be a lot less revenue there. But that's not a matter that can be controlled by the Canadian government or the Alberta government. And it's not about what Alberta or Canada chooses to do, but much more about what the world chooses. Well said. Good. David, you're mentioned oh. by name in number three. Hit me, man. Okay. Stephen Cretney, uh, an old colleague. Hey, Stephen. At some point in some episode in one of the three seasons of Energy versus Climate, you must be a dedicated listener, David mentioned there are several assumptions that the environmental movement makes about positive climate action that is not actually so positive, or at least does not have the emissions impact that is assumed. I would love to hear these again so I can dig deeper. I seem to recall one example being growing food locally, not having as much of an emission reduction as many think. Over to you, David. Well, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, you gave me one of the best answers. It really does seem persistently true that people believe that local food is going to be better for the environment and better for climate. And yet, while there's lots of things I say that are controversial or edgy, it is actually completely mainstream. There's like 30 different life cycle assessment studies that show this that the uh, transport component for food is really quite small. So it is often, although not always true, that buying uh, food, say lettuce, that is made far away in a very efficient field has less overall, say, greenhouse gas emissions or even other environmental footprint than buying something made locally uh, uh, that may have much uh, uh, higher footprint in growing it, even if it has a, a shorter transportation distance because the transportation emissions are just not a big part. So that, that's a great example. And I mean, there are really uh, absurd examples where uh, restaurants are serving local food that's grown hydroponically uh, that almost certainly has far higher emissions than the alternative. If you want to choose another example, uh, planting trees in places that have a lot of snow on ground that was not previously tree covered uh, depends on the details, but in many cases, that will be net warming, not net cooling, because the uh, albedo effect of having darker ground on an annual average turns out to be uh, bigger than the uh, cooling effect of having extra carbon in the trees, even if you assume the carbon stays in the trees. There are lots of other examples uh, like that. And I think, I think the big picture is, I think the environmental movement is not quite serious enough about what the consequences of some of the technologies we'd use, we have to decarbonize, but we're not quite serious enough about what the consequences are of, of decarbonizing a giant scale. If we're going to really drive emissions down towards zero, which we have to do, we have to think about energy systems that supply you know, up to 10 terawatts of clean primary energy, and we need to think hard about what the impacts of some of those are. And as let me be a defender of the environmental movement just for a second. So yes, and the environmental movement has the capacity to learn and listen to scientists like David and Sarah and change its opinion. And, uh, you know, we saw that on something like using biomass wood for fuel. Yep. You know, the, we're not going to power the world on wood again. The age of wood for fuel ended for a reason. 
It took the environment. So some parts of the environmental community a while to learn that it did. It moved on and we advocate or the grand we, the collective we advocate for different solutions. Agree. Okay. Let's get to audience Q&A. Robert Tremblay. Robert, uh, if you're able to, why don't you uh, ask your question live? Yeah, thanks, Ed. So this question's on heat pumps. So um, I live in a 100-year-old house kind of in inner city Calgary, basement suite, and my upstairs neighbor slash landlord um, is looking to install air conditioning for the summer. So I'm trying to convince um, them to get a mini split heat pump system instead. Um, And I think it's it's going successfully. I think that's what we're going to go with. But even just kind of Googling around, like he didn't really know what it was. And then you Google around to try and find an installer. Nobody really installs mini split heat pumps. They install like mini split AC systems. We've all heard lots of stories about contractors telling people not to install heat pumps because they don't work or quotes don't work. Um, But, you know, in the climate movement, we all know the heat pumps are really important for decarbonizing housing. So I guess I've always thought it'd be relatively straightforward to just quote unquote ban uh, air conditioners by mandating that all AC units are actually air source heat pumps. So they still are air conditioners. And I guess maybe that in effect, that's what net zero building codes will do. But I guess my question is, you know, like what, what do we need to do to get heat pumps installed and to really kind of get them set in as just a normal thing in the general population? I think it's a it's a great question. I think you have also partially answered it as far as the policy solution, right? And there's some um, there's a guy in, uh, I know from Twitter, uh, Nate the House Whisperer, who is a HVAC specialist who's definitely working in this space. If you're interested, uh, check out his his work. But I mean, he and and others are working on this idea that indeed we should simply just ban air conditioners and and perhaps give a few hundred dollars, um, you know, as an incentive or to offset the additional cost of a heat pump versus air conditioner because that is the cost differential we're looking at. But I think it's really important, actually, you know, right at this time now in in Alberta where we are seeing demand for air conditioners increase dramatically and a, and a really clear example of um, you know that this risk of locking in infrastructure that is not what we want and and the need to kind of get ahead of that okay let's leave it at that thanks as always Robert and look forward to seeing you next season <laughs> as well so uh, I'm gonna read a question here from uh, uh, Yori or Jory probably Yori Vermet regarding Sarah's tweet recently, A question, given the recent reluctance of Alberta oil sands companies to create their CCS projects and the statement that the tax credits offered by the federal government is allegedly not enough to foot the cost. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in the last year working on that tax credit. Where does that leave policy? How do we proceed when the oil and gas sector in Alberta is unwilling to cooperate with climate objectives, even ones as favorable as 50% coverage of CCUS projects? nationalization moratoriums okay um maybe i'll just comment on the challenge so and and provide a bit more context canada announced in budget 2022 in uh, april that it is offering an investment tax credit of 50 percent for ccus projects it has scoped out eor so you can't claim that tax credit if you're capturing CO2 to then put into oil fields to get more oil out of the ground through CO2 flooding, but it applies to cement, fertilizer, steel, and potentially oil and gas. And recently, Alex Porbet, the CEO of Synovus, was uh, on the day that he Synovus uh, uh, released a very large dividend, was saying, it's not enough, we need more support. And that sounds, I, I will say my voice to text, because I was texting someone about it, and voice to text translate, translated Alex Porbay's last name as Poor Babies, which was sort of laughable. Alex, I know you personally, it's no slight, but it just was kind of laughable. It came out as Poor, poor Babies. The reason he's saying that is because it's true. And from the start, people didn't like this investment tax credit because they thought that it would be the anti-oil and gas folks, it would be used by the oil and gas industry. But I think they need a higher number. So he is outgoing and saying, yeah, we still, these numbers don't pencil because capturing carbon in a lot of spots in the oil and gas industry relative to say cement is very expensive. And even if you get 50 50 cents back on every dollar uh, that you spend on capital, it's still not, the numbers won't pencil. How do we bridge that? Well, I'm not sure we do. We've done as much as we can and, and there gets to a point where you exhaust the appetite to spend public money to try to move those high carbon, high cost plays down to low carbon, low cost. 
Well, at, at risk of being a broken record, I, and and but referring back to uh, our episode with Rebecca Dell for cement, I, I think maybe we're over focusing on oil and gas, and and um, cement is an example where the oil and gas people would get to play in the sense that the skills for the CO two disposal and some of the skills for the um, capture are skills that they have or their EPC and associated companies have. But I think you could easily imagine a regulation for cement that would force some plants to go forward relatively quickly. And and that's an example where you don't need a big tax credit. You just need to have the willingness to impose the rules. Yeah. And the fact, though, that we do have this really significant carrot now, right? I mean, it's bigger than uh, that the any other clean tech in the budget got 30%, some got zero, um, and this and CCS is getting 50, um, is really, to me, it's like, well, this is actually a test, right? So are, is this going to happen? We can no longer talk about CCS as some you know, future maybe solution, but it's really going to, I think, allow policymakers and the, and the public to see what companies are really willing to do and able to do. And I think that could be an important outcome of this tax credit. And, you know, maybe we will see, uh, you know, cement plants or others moving on this. I agree. Uh, and with David's point that, you know, and, and Rebecca's point originally that, that of course we could also just say that they have to do it, but, but I think this is a big enough carrot that it almost is going to function that way. And, and either companies are going to do this or they're not. And it will give us a good sense of what we're really going to have to do to get to net zero by 2050 in Canada. Okay. We have time for uh, one question and then a, well, two questions. The first one from a listener who may or may not share my last name uh, to David and Sarah, what environmentally friendly present would you recommend that you give to mothers for Mother's Day? An e-bike, especially if they have little kids that they can put their kids on uh, the back of. Yeah. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. Okay. E-bike it is. Great. Uh, last question. So thank you, John Green. Oh, and thank you to that listener who shares uh, a last name with me. Um, this question, how does Canada get more people in Ontario and Quebec thinking about the discussions and topics your podcast is showcasing? Those are the high impact voting provinces. And I believe until people in those provinces are talking about these topics at the supper table, Canada's behaviors will be slower to change. Your topics tend to be realistic and grounding. So David, Sarah, we can extend our hands and give ourselves a little pat on the back. The end of season three, very quick answers from both of you. I think it's easy. We just make listening to this podcast mandatory. Have a a high penalty if you don't listen. (laughs) It's easy. David in the podcast czar role. Yeah. Okay. I, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think also, you know, so definitely share the podcast, uh, but talk to, your, talk to your friends and neighbors about it, right? Make it normal to talk about these issues uh, like you would talk about uh, who won the Flames game last night. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I think, I mean, a deliberate democracy was a big fancy word, but I, I feel like we need some kind of social movement that's less about winning a near-term battle, but about figuring out ways to get Canadians from different points of views actually practically talking about these problems, you know, some kind of like uh, supper times for climate where you get people to, you know, random, you know, groups of people, neighbors who have different views to actually come once a month or twice a year and talk about it. I think that really is the core. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I find like the feedback we get on this podcast, the fact that our listener numbers are going up and up after each season. And the people who show up on these webinars, I find that that gives me hope and optimism, which I need because we try to have honest, no BS, frank discussions, no happy talk. And it seems there's an appetite for it. So, And just, just imagine how much higher listener numbers could be with a federally enforced Trudeau driven energy <laughs> versus climate listening mandate. Like, yeah. like maybe it shouldn't even be a tax. Maybe it should be like that RCMP will come to your door if you don't watch it. Like, let's go all the way. Yeah, I, I like that. And I'm going to get, uh, as soon as we ring off here, right on the phone to Pierre Polyev, because I think that should be part of his Freer Canada mandate. Freer Canada, freedom through listening to energy versus climate. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Freedom let's... is slavery. <laughs> um, thank you, David. Thank you, Sarah, for another wonderful uh, season. Remember, this episode is available at energyversusclimate.com and on Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please review and rate us uh, on your favorite podcast platform. 
that helps new listeners find the show and the honest, frank, no BS conversations that we have. Send us feedback at info at energyversusclimate.com. That's it for season three. Make sure to subscribe at energyversusclimate.com to be notified when we're back in the fall with season four. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energy Versus Climate. The show is created by David Keefe, Sarah Hasing simon and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Voinijescu. Mika McFarlane, Crystal Hickey, and Christina Pearson provide webinar support. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.com. Interact with us live every other week and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen.